Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Mitzi Montoya is a decorated academician and university administrator. She started her career in 1995 at North Carolina State as an assistant professor in marketing and product innovation. She was quickly promoted to full professor eight years later. By 2009, she was in her first leadership role serving as assistant dean of research in the College of Management. From there, she moved to Arizona State and served in a variety of executive positions, including vice provost for their Polytechnic campus. From there, it was on to Oregon State, where again, she assumed a variety of leadership roles, including Dean of the College of Business. In January of 2023, Mitzi was named Provost of the University of Utah. But before she moved, we caught up with her when she was Dean of the Anderson School of Business at the University of New Mexico. Today, she will share with us the complex task she assumed of establishing salary equity within the Anderson School at New Mexico. When Mitzi arrived, faculty across all ranks were roughly paid the same amount, irrespective of their disciplines. Moreover, within those roughly flat salaries, there are accumulated wage biases not related to performance, but rather to factors such as race and gender. Solving this rat's nest of issues was a huge task. In this episode of Dean's Council, we learned some key approaches Mitzi used to gain the trust and respect of her faculty colleagues in dealing with this touchy subject, the key role of setting clear and transparent standards, and dealing with the naysayers who are always present in situations such as these. The living document she refers to in this episode as a white paper appears to be a clever technique we can all use in driving complex strategic change. So we're here this afternoon with Mitzi Montoya, who is the Dean of the Anderson School at the University of New Mexico. Very, very pleased to have you speak to Ken Kring and myself today, Mitzi. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here with both of you. So we we know that UNM is one of the, the most diverse universities and obviously one of the most diverse business schools in the country. And diversity comes about in many, many ways. And before we, we hang up today, I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways you celebrate diversity. But I think first what we need to talk about is issues that you had when you came on board relative to diversity of salaries. And that's a, that's a very interesting thought that all of us as deans have to put up with because there are so many different salary levels and as much as we like to think we're we're pretty equal in terms of the way we do pay when you start to mess around with somebody's wallet it becomes a bit of a problem and so if you wouldn't mind sort of sharing with us today some of the issues you faced and how you resolved those because i think we all really benefit from that well sure thank you and uh, this is a topic that's top of mind for me because we, as I arrived and began looking at where we were, it so happened to coincide with an AACSB accreditation cycle visit. 
And so some of the analysis that we did as part of our self-study was looking at our salaries. And, and I would say, you know, there was, there's good, bad, and ugly about the story. We were historically, this school is low in salaries relative to our peers and aspirational peers, but that presented actually an interesting opportunity. And, and so this is not the first business school where I've worked, and this may surprise some people, but this business school had a history of paying a set flat salary for all faculty, no matter what discipline, which is, of course, as we know, um, nonsensical, because think of the difference between management versus finance or accounting versus marketing. Uh, and so there was serious market inequity across disciplines and also a mindset that that was okay and that we should not have diversity of salaries. So uh, a big piece that I tackled was one, really using data to normalize and share what uh, what expectations should be about salary and that there's difference by discipline and by rank. Uh, two, the data really helped us clarify the magnitude of the problem and how far were we off market. But it also raised the whole issue of some people are not off market if their performance is not at market. So we spent a lot of time talking about market performance in relation to market salary and 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 a lot of time on why and why do we need to care about salary and because we need to attract and retain top scholars. Um, we also needed to address salary from an equity standpoint. We had inequity across disciplines relative to market. And we also needed to respond to AACSB expectations. And, and that was very helpful, actually, as an additional trigger here that what we wanted to do was to raise standards and improve our, our salaries in doing so. So that, that was setting the stage. And then we had to go about working the problem. So I'll start with that and then see what, what it peaks as an interest in questions about how we did what we did or what we did. We'd love to hear how you sold it within the university and what sorts of bridges you needed to cross in order to convey you know, the market-based importance. We would imagine that everything from faculty recruiting to retention to um, you know, just being able to cut through the AACSB standards must have been plenty of incentive for you. But how did you get it across in ways that uh, allowed you to be effective? Yeah, and it's a, it's been an interesting process because there are two pieces to what you ask. There's actually, for me, there was the communicating it up. So I had to communicate it up to the provost office, and then I had to communicate it in the school. And then there's a third wrinkle, which is that the year I arrived, the faculty had voted in a union. So that complicates things even further. So, uh, and I had also never worked in a unionized environment. So that was great, fast learning um, in the middle of COVID and what all that means. So the communicating it up was very much a, the university is simultaneously, was just getting ready to start a salary study. So uh, it's part of why I leapt at this uh, from a timing standpoint, because I worked to basically create the model that now the university is using as the process for the all the other units. This is where AACSB was a phenomenal advantage because we have fantastic data. Uh, we had to go through a process of very careful peer selection, but the convincing up was really about the data. Here's where we are. Here's where market is. Here's what caused it. Uh, which was prior hiring practice, and and then answered the question of, 
and this is what market performance looks like for our peers. Um, as we went through this, we really had to go all the way down to basics. You know, we, we had to define standards of evaluation. Uh, more importantly, to make any changes, you have to have the resources to do it. The provost didn't give me any new money. I had to generate all the money. So you had to build the sustainable business model, which is what I spent the first year doing. All the first year was laying foundation. Do you have, can you have a business model that will support this? What are your standards of evaluation? Um, how, what is your ramp plan? How are you going to ramp this up? How do you ensure that if you do this once, you can repeat it? So you're building a repeatable system. Internally, the pitch was not as difficult as some people thought it would be because I approached it from two paths. I, I worked on equity issues and merit. And I think that resonated with a lot of people because we did have some people, have a lot of people that were being paid inequitably internally for comparable performance. And then we have other people who were very high performers that are paid inequitably equitably relative to market. And the net net is that we ended up in a scenario where about two thirds of the faculty got something out of this model as we developed a differentiated workload track. And that allowed, I think, and encouraged buy-in because everybody saw they got something and most people saw aspiration to what they needed to do very clearly and uh, and fairly if they wanted to earn more. If you do X, you get Y. And so it was a very transparent system. Uh, it was implemented consistently. It tackled equity and merit. And, and those things were very appealing to everyone. And then what it sat on is a sustainable business model uh, that, that was uh, a whole lot of separate work on its own. But those were the key selling points for both from a unionized standpoint, the provost and the faculty here. How did you do that? How did you do the merit aspect of it? I mean, so many times in terms of, of promotion, you know, we're moving them based on articles, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about, let's start with the merit side, and then we want to probably come back to the other side, but the merit side. And then my second question to you would be, in terms of the total payroll dollars, what was the percent of increase that you had to incur to do all of this once you had it all done. But we can get down to that later on. Let's start with the merit. Now, how do you determine merit? And and, and and did they agree with that? Back to kind of what Ken said. How'd you sell the merit aspect? Yeah, so that started uh, about two years ago. We I The first thing I did was I formed something called the Research Excellence Advisory Council. There's also a Teaching Excellence Advisory Council. I did not do one for service. Uh, that one's a little bit more straightforward. And, and so asked, asked them, but it wasn't an ask from a blank page. Um, you know, again, we really needed to lift our standards. And so we asked them to develop two things. One, a recommendation on a standard of evaluation. So specifically journalists, everyone has lists. Not everyone has lists, but a lot of people have lists. Here, there was a complete lack of agreement and arguments about the value or merit of any given publication was a purely political process with no standards at all, and which was actually an opportunity. So because there were no standards and there was intense politicking around every publication, people really were, there was a desire and an appetite for something that was more transparent and consistent so that I don't have to argue with you or my chair every publication I get. 
So we adopted a standard. You know, there are a couple of journalists out there. We went with the one that I would consider to be the most generous, which is ABDC. Whether it's my favorite or not is irrelevant. We needed agreement on a standard. That was step one. Then we had that same council do an evaluation of what are the, they call them the indisputably excellent. So we have an indisputable list and they developed a very complicated methodology and and everyone agreed because everyone kept throwing up excuses. Well, what about this? And what about that? And they would run this analysis and, and it produced exactly the list you would expect, but you know, it's as you would expect it's faculty. So it's a really complicated process, but it's fine. It's a good list. It's a list of like the top 50 journals. So you've got the indisputables and then you've got this standard and they agreed to that because I needed that as a foundation for then how do you define merit as part of the union Bargaining members are required to have a workload policy. And so we negotiated for nearly a year to establish this workload policy. And it was a lot of back and forth. But what the workload policy has are tracks. So let's call the top ones business research intensive. And on that one, you know, it's people publishing X numbers of Y type of journal on a rolling three-year basis. The negotiation was really about having enough tracks so that everybody felt like they had a track that they fit in. And then there were incentives attached to each track. So if you're in this track, you get this much of a professorship. If you're in that track, you get that much. And here was the art. The art was that everybody got something. So some people got a lot more because they were performing at much higher levels of research. But those that were, you know, there's a track called practice intensive track. There's one called interdisciplinary. And everybody everybody got a little more, which is how we drove buy-in. So this was a, a model where the intent was to clearly prioritize top-tier research, but to also acknowledge that our faculty salaries on average ranged between 24 and 58% below market. So to me, it was fair to even have these low tracks get a little bit more. And so they did. And that's, that's I mean, underneath it all, that's how I got buy-in to do this. The top tracks got a lot more. So we're creating significant spread now in salaries that used to have very little variance, but the faculty feel okay with it because they're on a track that's validated. They can continue to make progress and they get paid a little bit more than they were. So they're happy and they know what they have to do if they want to move up to the next track. So the tracks are performance-based, not I declare I'm on business research intensive, pay me more. It's, it's based on your last three years of performance and your lifetime record. It's interesting. You're providing a lot of evidence. Uh, let me just b- back up and say, you know, diversity and diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. Diversity is there's a lot of research and a lot of a lot of evidence uh, that diversity is good business. Can you just sort of tie in sort of the how is equity good? How do you think of it as good business? Some of these examples you're giving obviously are, but sort of how, what to what extent have you thought of uh, equity as sort of from a business standpoint? Well, a couple of things. So first to clarify the way I'm using equity as it relates to compensation is so very specifically equity has to do with the fact that if you have someone at the same rank in the same discipline and comparable performance and they're being paid differently, you have inequity. That's inequity. And often that's gender-based, race-based, whatever, the chair disliked somebody, whatever. So that's how I'm using it. And so as it relates to then what that tends to play out as 
Uh, I actually will pull the stats because I just presented them at the, I just came from my all college meeting. Uh, and as it, it's exactly how it played out. When we did that analysis, it was, it was predominantly minorities and women. They got most that, well, not all, but I would say 75% of the equity adjustments. They had been underpaid. And so clearly it was some sort of bias based on whatever, whatever reason. So we did the analysis looking at when we, when we went through and did our analysis of who was the, built the model for who was going to get which awards, we did it blind of name and we were just looking at data. And then, you know, you take the name blind off and you look and I, I was, I was actually surprised to see it play out the way it did. The merit awards, there was no differences across gender, race uh, were the two factors that we looked at. But on the equity awards, meaning when we looked at people of same rank, same discipline, same performance, 75% of them went to women and minorities. So it's critically important. It shows there had been some degree of bias over the years in our salary habits. But then there was other bias, which actually was discipline-based bias. And here, the management faculty had been advantaged for the last you know, 50 years, and finance and accounting had been significantly disadvantaged for the last 50 years. So that's that's bias too. And we corrected that. And so that's important because it makes us more competitive in the market. You know, if I can show with real data that, A, this is the process we use to ensure lack of bias in our compensation strategy. And then B, these are the adjustments, the real adjustments that we're making year over year. We're a better place to work if you are a woman or a person of color. And clearly you're a better place to work if I'm trying to recruit finance and accounting faculty, if I can play, you know, closer to market for my peers, which is, that's the other big reset we did in this. We reset all new hires to market, which caused immediate inversion, as you might imagine. And I would say uh, instant motivation to increase your productivity because all those new hires came in at a significantly higher standard for promotion with tenure. So it's very clear how to get there. We have merit awards and merit compensation, which means we pay for hits in elite journals, pay as you go, pay to play. And then if you continue that over a three-year period, you get a base adjustment. So it's been, my view is it's clear, it's transparent, it's fair. There's no gaming the system. There's no arguing. Uh, you are, you're either proof is in the pudding uh, and you can argue all you want, but it's not a political game anymore. And what, what percent of the consideration relative to these bases was on research for a tenure, tenure track faculty member? And then what percent was on workload? Because workload always seems to take second place in these kinds of discussions. Um, how did you bring those two in and sort of mesh them together to come up with one situation? So that's a good question. The, the I would say that the way we've treated, you know, I'll call it workload. I'll talk about it as our three big buckets. So you've got research, teaching, service. With teaching and service, the the evaluation was simpler. It's did you meet, exceed, or not meet expectation? So you're in... You, there's no merit award if you don't meet across all three. So clearly, and so being we're a research intensive university, we're an R1 and our mandate is to improve our research portfolio. So there is strong emphasis on research as the, um, as the primary basis for merit. 
but you could have a very strong scholar who's not performing in the classroom or not doing their service and they will not get a merit raise. So that that was important because that was a lot of the original talk by the faculty was, I'm not going to take that service assignment. I have to do my research or arguing to get out of class or doing a terrible job in class. And then it's like, well, then fine, you can do all the research you want, but you're not going to get any merit awards. So that was important to use as a foundational base that you do have to meet expectations in your service and teaching evaluations. And we've put a lot of rigor around what that means. So we also work through an entire rubric, basically, I guess I would call it, of uh, how to evaluate teaching and service. Research actually is easier to evaluate. Once you adopt a list, you're just counting, counting and checking letters, <laughs> you know, so it's easy. So, which was the interesting flip that our department chairs all had like this huge epiphany. They're like, all this time as chairs, the real struggle and tension had been around how to evaluate research. And suddenly that's easy. And, and now they're concerned about, okay, now how do we do this to lift the quality of our teaching and our service as well? So they, they took that project on themselves and have developed rubrics around how to better state expectations for teaching and service and then evaluate. I really like what you've done. I think it's terrific. It, it's obviously the provost wasn't going to give you any extra money because that just isn't something they do. That's that the nature of the provost is to say no when it comes to going to have any extra money. So what was the magnitude of the increase in the payroll when you uh, when it all shook out at the end? So for this year, the increase in total between awards and base adjustment is just about $2 million. And we also spent another million this year on um, research development. So that was this was a multi-part plan and it started, the four parts are that we did standards of evaluation to adopt clear standards that I would call normalized to market. We reset expectations to normalize to market, invested in faculty development, and then developed a holistic compensation plan. So that's this year, but the goal also, we didn't burn all of it in one year, even people that clearly should be moved much higher. This is intended to be, it's an every year thing. And that was a big piece of expectation that I set out. And you'll appreciate this, Jim. This only works if we maintain a very specific enrollment. And I can only maintain a certain enrollment if we have quality programs and you let us adapt to market. You, the faculty, have to stop voting no at every curriculum meeting where we ask, can we adjust this, that, or other, because that's that's the name of the game. So I've tied it all together. It, it's in their their control. If they help us maintain high quality graduate programs specifically so that we can compete in the market at exactly this enrollment level, then we can do this every year forever until someone turns off our money or something else happens. So I didn't do, even though someone might be this far below market, and we took a big step this year, but I want this to be a multi-year engagement. You want to change the culture of, of the chase and continuous improvement. So we, we noted as we were anticipating this conversation that you, you know, began your assignment on the front end of the COVID era. This is really impressive how much you've been able to do over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, just be interested to hear you reflect on sort of the impact of working through this period of time on the kind of uh, change you've been able to uh, orchestrate. Well, oddly, 
I would say, I think COVID helped, weirdly enough, because you had to communicate differently. And I actually would say we had more voice because you weren't just in a big, large faculty meeting and you got the two or three dominant players shouting down or whatever. We created a lot of different channels of input, anonymous input, small town halls, department by department. Um, the anonymous input turned out to be you know, probably the most uh, vitriol from extremes, you know, people that loved it, hated it, you know, and so on. And then, but we would take that and verbatim take clips of what people put in anonymous input. We'd go put it up on the screen in the next town hall and, and also used it as an opportunity to teach how to have debate and discussion and that conflict's okay, uh, which is not super comfortable here in lots of places, but some places more so than others. And so I actually think we had more input because of it. And, and I also think it kept some of the, what might've been more uncomfortable open public meetings, less so because you're in a Zoom environment, you know, and, and, I and, uh, and it just, I, I actually, so oddly enough, I think it, it ended up helping communication because of how we did it. And it forced us to seek input in a lot of different ways, but I also used it then to drive a cadence around, you know, and now we're in open discussion time. And so you gather all this input. We iterated the document extensively. So I'm a big fan of white papers. I white paper everything. If I got an idea, I'm going to put it out there. I slap draft all over it, let them react, edit it, put it back out, let them react, edit it, put it back out. So we went through, you know, the chairs alone, I probably went through 15 drafts. And then once we got to the faculty, now I've got the chairs advocating because it was their idea too. They had buy-in. Um, and we went through probably five more drafts and then I called the vote and let, let the majority speak. It was not a unanimous vote, uh, all this model that I just described, uh, but it was 70, 30. That's, that's a strong majority in my opinion, department by department. That was a strong majority. Then we moved forward and I will tell you, there was nervousness about that was just last fall. I was bent on a mission to implement and we implemented and my, my senior leadership team was very nervous. And everyone expected all this. And and instead, it's just been gratitude and, you know, rainbows because people love it when you're putting money in their pocket. So that was my view. Even if I only gave five faculty money, they would be new advocates and supporters. Well, you know, we gave money to about two thirds of the faculty, uh, got a major raise, and then everybody got a little something. So, you know, I don't know if they love the process, but they do not dislike the outcome. I'll say that. I bet they don't. I bet they really don't. I mean, it's wonderful to hear you talk about this because I would guess that nobody's been able to really quantify it as well as you've done in terms of setting up this entire strategy, which is so great because there it takes all the questions out of it. I mean, there still are questions, but it takes most questions out of the equation. Yeah, and I forgot to say that, actually. I That was the other tactic I learned from someone else long ago. When you're doing something like this and people write in all these different channels, questions, we started, we ran a, um, a running Q&A document. You ask a question, I, we wrote an answer to it. And it, that was just a running document that we kept pushing out. And, and so it really, it really took a lot of air out of balloons. And there were people very nervous and concerned about fairness uh, I had to sit with the provost office uh, team multiple times and go through the, it, it, 
spreadsheet line by line, person by person. Why is this person getting more? Why is this person not? And they've endorsed it now as the model for the university. So it's what's being used as part of the salary study for the university and the structure for how you have to do this because these pieces go together. The sustainable business model has to go with the integrated compensation components and you have to be transparent about all of it and they have to go together. So we're all jointly tied at the hip here now to make this keep working. It's it's so terrific. It's interesting and it will be interesting to see how the university does it just as a sidebar because they don't have the extensive benchmarking data that you got out of AACSB. They don't get that kind of thing in so many different departments. You get it yep. and you've got it. And they've probably, they're probably a little jealous about the fact that you've got such great numbers to work from and they don't necessarily have that. Um, you know, they're still thumb, doing it by thumbnail and saying, oh, this looks like it fits and doesn't necessarily work. So apparently now, though, I mean, certainly several of us professional schools have it, but apparently there's some database that's available because I heard them describe it out of Oklahoma State University, where they now have collected data across all the disciplines. So it's uh, apparently their institutional research office has data available. I don't know if it's for purchase or free. Um, I didn't get my hands on it, but it's I argued that I ought not have to use their data because we have excellent data. So I have no reason to, but um, it, it that's, I have to say um, that is one of the greatest value adds of AACSB in my opinion, is it lets us under, understand where we are relative to others and then make these kinds of strategic decisions that are data informed, not just guessing. I know they'll like to hear that because Everybody else tells them they don't provide us any value, but next, well, well I wasn't going to say that is. on here, but that's a separate. <laughs> <laughs> I said that's the one thing that they do well. <laughs> I mean, I pay for that data. Will you be able to collect your own data related to faculty recruitment, faculty retention, sort of faculty improvement? I mean, is that something that you'll be able to tie back to these? Absolutely. And I also am already tracking the and what has changed about our publication data, discipline by discipline, rank by rank, because that's where I expect to see the lift. Right. That's what that's what I really want to see. And then over time, uh, you should see a different caliber of faculty you've been able to hire. We should have less loss. I mean, you want healthy turnover is not bad if someone's leaving that needs to move on. But you don't want to lose people because we're severely underpaying them, which is what was happening. We were having people go because they could double their salary in one move. That's crazy. So in the couple of seconds that we have left, tell us a little bit about how else you celebrate diversity. That was, that's a great story for all of us in terms of diversity and, and, and equity of pay. But how else do you celebrate diversity in a very diverse environment? Well, you know, we are we are extremely diverse. Our student bodies, you know, my students are about two thirds of some underrepresented minority, which is amazing. So that's fantastic. Um, I would say in terms of how we celebrate it or something that I've learned, you know, that was has been interesting being here. Our student body, therefore, is very of great interest to lots of companies. Um, but we have to work with our students to help one uh, fully prepare them in terms of a professionalism standpoint, but also help them understand how to um, speak about and acknowledge their own diversity because they aren't diverse here. This is normal here. We're a minority state, right? And so now when our students go out into the workforce, sometimes it's the first time they've experienced the fact that 
others view them as a minority. So that's been an interesting thing. It doesn't answer your question exactly about celebrate diversity, but I would say it's an important thing here about acknowledging diversity, the value of it, and being able to articulate that to an employer, why that makes you different and valuable in a unique way. And, and I had not anticipated that when I came here. It's like when people ask, what's it like being a woman? I'm like, I don't know anything else. I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I don't know. Or so it's, it's, it's that. So you, but I've learned not to say that's a dumb question. I learned to try to answer it as if I know compared to what else. So <laughs> that's good. Well, I, I got to tell you, it's been great chatting and hearing this story because this is one that a lot of people will benefit from hearing. And we really, really appreciate you telling the story. And thank you so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. And I'm also happy to share any of the materials that we developed around this because there was a lot of developing of the case as we had to communicate it up and out. And all those, I'm happy to share any of that. We'd like to see a couple of those early white uh, paper drafts, actually. Sure, I'd be happy to share. I think the later ones are better than the first ones. <laughs> so what, what the team did learn is they had to edit my answers to the Q&A. They had to make them sound nicer. So that was important. My answer would be no. <laughs> Thank you, Mitzi. Thanks for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Talk soon. Good to see you, Jim. Nice to meet you, Ken. Thank you. Bye. fascinating you know not only were her ideas crisp and visionary sort of on how to make make a place better um, and really sort of got right to the heart of all the most important aspects of diversity uh, uh, equity and ultimately inclusion but data-driven I mean, her description of using those white papers and gaining buy-in through sort of serial or sequencing of, you know, uh, iteration. Uh, when you say the proof is in the pudding, the proof is also in making the pudding and, and doing it the right way. And you could just hear from her examples that she was willing to put in the hard work and to do the kind of inclusive involvement of others to get to uh, solutions that were for the betterment of all. Yeah, I, I heard such creativity and ingenuity in the way she put this thing together with real numbers and then the way she sold it through, like you said, the white papers. She sold it up, she sold it down, and um, there's no argument here, which there always is. It's going to help her, as you said, in recruitment and retention hugely because she can prove it. And, and here she had these highly underpaid people that she was able to bring up to some kind of market. Yeah, it's going to make them qualify to go elsewhere, but it's also going to make them feel like, hey, I'm, I, they care about me here. I'm going to stay here. Yeah, and, and, and to, to her point, you know, there's some people you want to lose, but you want to, you want to hold the good people. And the good people need, you know, our market, you know, there is a market. It sure is. And um, that was a very worthwhile conversation. I'm glad we had it. It'll, it'll be a benefit to a lot of people, and I know she'll be happy to share with them. Indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. 
For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show 